0: Internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel,
1: and I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. And Andy, you were telling me before we started recording that um, what 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 is it you're in you're in the most tremendous pain of your life?
0: <laughs> I burned my belly. so uh i i spent much of the weekend at one of the uh orlando resort pools and forgot that my ancestors are celtic and german and therefore i i tend to burn pretty easily i always forget how easily i burn and i i put sunscreen on my face And then just decided that an unbuttoned, open Hawaiian shirt would provide adequate UV coverage, uh, along with my own chest hair, to protect me and my chest from the sun. And it didn't. And I burned my chest and my belly. Oh my god, (laughs) wait
1: a minute. You didn't mention this. You were wearing an (laughs) open Hawaiian shirt. So, like, do you have, like... Buttresses of unburned skin around, just like an extreme Brazilian of burn skin going up your torso.
0: I mean, we'll see how it tans out, but I, I absolutely had uh, tan lines that basically like nipple width apart of my chest. You, you've got pink, and then. Right right before my nips, you've got the tan lines of, of where the shirt covered me.
1: <laughs> Wait. Dude, okay. I'm about to ask what may be the dumbest question that has ever been asked on this podcast. But you for context, Andy, uh, it's not that I don't sunburn. I do sunburn. I don't sunburn, like, badly or too easily. Um... You know, melanin is kind, but it is not everything. But Andrew, do nipples sunburn?
0: My experience <laughs> they they do. They are they are part of the skin, just like anything else.
1: Yes, but like nipples don't callous. That is one way in which they are different from other skin. Like, ask any runners. Like there's a reason those runner shirts are like sweat wicking because if you see people who run ultra marathons and like cotton, there's a reason their nipples start bleeding uh, because that friction, their nipples never callous. So that friction just means that it's always just like your nipples are baby soft from birth to the grave.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, I mean, yeah, like but I, I never knew if they sunburn. Well, I, unfortunately I, I can't provide an answer for you because like I said, I, I dodged that particular part of the bullet. I, I, there's no way I haven't, like, just burned my entire torso before, but one's not coming to mind. Maybe, maybe they don't. Mm. It's possible.
1: White listeners, statistically, you are the majority because you're listening to a podcast. White listeners, please tweet me. Tweet me with your stories and or science. Do nipples sunburn.
0: <laughs> and then, as always, we promise we'll read your emails.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, like, as as of when we're recording this, um, our Neil Gaiman episode dropped, like, the day before.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so far, none of you have asked for Neil Gaiman reading recommendations. It's fine. We're not offended. But um, but I- I'm just saying, I'm waiting for the ask that gets, you know, all like three dozen consistent listeners that we have to just write in unanimously and just berate us with an answer. Do nipples sunburn. I want to know, tell me your stories. If you have any scientific backing that says one way or the other. Uh, If if, if you have experienced severe sunburn on everything but your nipples. If you tan with pasties, why or why not? These are the hard-hitting questions that we desire to ask in this, the intro portion of Love-Hate Relationship. (laughs)
0: And, and, you know, we could look it up. I have an open computer in front of me, but it, it wouldn't be nearly as fun. So
1: I, I have two open computers in front of me. And a smartphone. And I still won't look it up.
0: Nerd. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of sunburns, um, I didn't plan to tell this, but, you know, this isn't the worst I've ever burned myself. The reason I was telling you this, and, and the... the ending of this story was I burned my, my chest so bad that it caused me to like go running out of my house at 8.30 on a Monday to drive straight to the nearest place I could find some aloe vera like I don't know what was going on but I was in serious pain it is not the worst sunburn I've ever had because the worst sunburn I ever had I darn near like made myself purple it was so bad and this was from a day at the beach with just no sunscreen and no uh regard for my well-being at all and i can remember this was still like like high school so my mom buys this weird blue aloe burn gel that i'd never seen before and you know i'm i'm putting it on and maybe it was just cuz i burned myself so badly or maybe i was allergic to something in this but it just instantly like like lit my skin aflame all over again i i I ran and jumped into my swimming pool and you can ask my uh my dad and my brother um apparently i ran with such fervor that when they asked what was wrong the only thing i could uh respond with was blue fire fuck off <laughs> Apologies, Mrs. Ruiz. I I know you like Uh, it and I don't swear.
1: (laughs) uh, Hey, Mom. I love you a lot. Thank you for supporting us. (laughs) You're our number one fan. Uh, (laughs) Blue fire. Fuck off.
0: Followed by 20 minutes of just standing in a pool waiting for the pain to go away.
1: What did your mother give you like I, Vaseline laced with chlorine?
0: I don't remember. It was it was blue and w- that was like the big tipper off cuz you know most aloe based product is green. This was this was some blue marketed as sunburn ointment and like again maybe it works fine for a slight burn but I had as as bad of a sunburn as you could possibly have all over my legs and back.
1: Um, so I don't don't know. (laughs) Like, in the old days, you just throw on a bunch of calamine, and and calamine feels nice. I mean, I don't know if it helps heal the sunburn, but it just kind of cools you off. It sounds like your mother gave you coagulated toilet water. (laughs) Like...
0: It is entirely possible.
1: I would start a band. I would start a punk band called Coagulated Toilet Water. That sounds awful.
0: Sounds appropriate.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well... Speaking of um, very fast-moving uh, pasty white dudes,
0: I'm so proud of you. That's would such you an amazing... like to get
1: into? Would you like to get into our first topic?
0: <laughs> Only because that transition was blue fire.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, so at the top, y'all, almost ten minutes in. This is love-hate relationship. We do three segments. Andy will start us off with a love, I will bring in a hate, and then we will take a question from you, our beautiful, wonderful audience. So, all that said, Andy?
0: Yeah, let's get into it. Um, So, if we did the math right, this should be coming in middle of May-ish? This this episode should be dropping in the middle of the NHL playoffs and so it is a spectacularly uh, it is a spectacular time to talk about one of my favorite hockey teams, if not my favorite hockey team, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Right off the bat I want to say I I have much more foresight now than the previous hockey episode I did where I talked about something as it was going on and it didn't release until like the middle of June when there was no hockey to be had in any way, shape, or form. So, we are learning. Um, Yes, indeed. I believe
1: this will drop uh, the first week of May. I believe May 7th.
0: Perfect. Okay, so that should be uh, either the end of the first round or the beginning of the second round of the NHL playoffs. In any any case, uh, the Lightning should still be going at it. Um, If they get bounced in the first round, it would be a upset of outstanding proportions. And as of now, we don't know who they're playing, but there's about a 50-50 shot that it's the Carolina Hurricanes, who are technically your home state hockey team, so we might have a little LHR-friendly rivalry going on, if I can get you to care about hockey at all.
1: (laughs) Andy, I once visited Sharp... Charlotte, North Carolina, while I guess the Hurricanes were doing very, 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 very well, and the city was abuzz with glee and happiness that they had hometown heroes skating on ice and scoring goals, and I just walked about kind of going, is there any place any place that is not playing this goddamn hockey game (laughs) on the fucking bar screens and then we're not so apparently the carolinas take hockey infinitely more serious than i ever will but if it'll make you happy i will lie to you
0: that always makes you happy when you lie to me buddy Um, so this is, this, uh, obviously you've, you've made it clear you're, you're not a hockeyman as it were, I feel like... That's, no, but I support you, so... And, and, and that's fair, I, and I know much of our listener base is not uh, hockey fans, as it were. This this episode is really going to be going out to my buddies Matthew and, and Michael and anyone else from my Fantasy Hockey League who's listening. Hi, guys. <laughs> but for the rest of you, I do plan on educating you about the Tampa Bay Lightning and why specifically... The 2018-2019 Tampa Bay Lightning have been a outstandingly, phenomenally, historically good team. So, without any further ado, just a little bit of history. The Tampa Bay Lightning were founded in 1992, which makes them as old as I am. Uh, they were founded by a financing group headed up by NHL Hall of Famers Phil and Tony Esposito, who fronted $50 million in 1992 money, uh, for the expansion fee to be granted the right for Tampa Bay to have a team. And they decided to name them the Lightning after the Lightning capital of the world, which Tampa Bay actually is. Um, So it's a pretty...
1: Hold on, hold on, hold on. I I have $50 million in 1992 money, and it is... $90 $90 million, $84,105.49 in 2019.
0: There you go. Man, that dual screen... I act, helped. That dual screen action is really paying off.
1: <laughs> I'm saying. Please continue.
0: So the, it, the the Lightning's formative years were decent for an expansion team, which is to say they were hot dog shit bad. Um, but that's, that's normal. Most expansion teams are tremendously bad the only exception coming to mind being las vegas who are the newest hockey team period and in their very first year went all the way to the stanley cup finals but
1: i'd pardon my pardon my asking quickly what's what exactly is an expansion team
0: so when the nhl was formed there were six teams and they are affectionately called the original six Any team that has come along since those six teams are technically an expansion team. And, you know, in the past, it's been groups of four to one team at a time and it's it's kind of dragged to you get one new team maybe every 5 6 years ish but so an expansion team being a non original hockey team
1: okay cool thank you for clarifying of
0: course um so the lightning were bad they they were they were very bad on the ice despite winning their first game but they had a couple of hometown heroes who had just amazing names you had Darren Poopa, who was
1: like, one of their first great goalies. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm going to stop laughing just because the next one's great.
0: And uh, their first ever draft pick was Roman Hammerlick. <laughs> <laughs> Hammerlick! <laughs> oh! Okay, please continue. Yes, those those were for you. <laughs> Aww.
1: Um,
0: as well as a guy named by the name of Chris Contos, which is not really funny, but he did score four goals in the Lightning's first ever game, so that got him a pass for a couple of years. Okay. The Lightning were bad on the ice, and the Lightning were bad off of the ice. Things were just as crazy and tumultuous for the first couple years uh, the IRS came knocking a couple of times, and I want to say like seventeen million dollars was misplaced and not properly filed. Um, there were I didn't know this until really looking into it, but there were rumors that that financing group that bought the Lightning were. Actually, just a front from the Yakuza to uh, the Japanese some, mafia, The Japanese mafia, the Yakuza um, in a money laundering scheme, theoretically bought themselves a hockey team. I, I've heard of weirder things.
1: Eh, The Saudi royal family owns most of the real estate in New York. Eh. Shit's weird.
0: (laughs) Well, my favorite thing about just that little tidbit is it's not even the only uh, tie the NHL has had to organized crime that I can think of. And, I mean, I'm sure all uh, the major sports have their uh, criminal organization scandals, but, you know, I don't know them well enough to know that the New York Knicks are in with the mob or something like that.
1: Uh... Think more Chicago and you'll probably hit it.
0: Yeah, I can see it. <laughs> um so for the first 6 years the franchise is up to its eyeballs in debt and and was seen as one of the laughing stocks both of hockey and the North American sports world like like Forbes I think way back in 95ish listed this thing as one of the greatest like financial black holes you as a rich business person could sink yourself on and so in order to keep things interesting in order to keep people engaged The Lightning had to get kind of creative and and do more than their own fair share of publicity stunts. And the biggest one that comes to mind, and I actually think this is kind of a good story, the Lightning made sports history when they had Manon Rume play as the team's goaltender and... Manon Rume is interesting and important because she is a woman. Um, She was not only the first woman to play in the National Hockey League, but also the first woman to play for any major professional North American Sports League. So, granted it was a publicity stunt. Granted she played two games and then was never heard of again in the NHL. Uh, Progress, kind of. I mean, it's not
1: jackie robinson but credit words do
0: yeah i think so and plus her name is oh, cool. pretty amazing to say Manon rumet like you can't I don't know it's no
1: darren poopa yeah
0: <laughs> well you, you you your mouth like forces you to go into a french accent for Rume, and uh poopa is is a lot more uh what's that what's that uh I'm blanking on the word i don't know what the fuck you're talking about ah, never mind i'm just like saying poopa there you go <laughs> so I'm, I'm telling you all these things about the lightning and, and how they started and how they were a bit of a tire fire and a laughing stock and i'm i'm sure you the listener are asking well so why are they your favorite team are you that much of a glutton for punishment and i am not by the turn of the millennium and three owners later The team had managed to turn things around, and they even won the Stanley Cup in 2004. Uh, That was around the same time I, living in Colorado, became aware of the team and and became a fan. And do you, you, are you familiar with the term bandwagon fan, Alex?
1: Bandwagon? Is that just like fans who jump on... Uh, As soon as their team is successful, and then when their team sucks, they just kind of leave them in the dust?
0: Yeah, pretty much. You become a fan of somebody because they just won a major title.
1: Yes, I feel as though there was a Simpsons episode that covered this nicely.
0: Uh, it's a great team, Kent. You never gave up hope. I want to thank Jesus and say hi to my special lady, March. We did it, baby! Woo! There you go. Then, then I don't have to explain it in too much depth, but I am gonna have to find that drop now. Um, you have to understand, my friend. I am
1: from, I was born in the Northeast. Do you have any idea what the New York Yankees are to baseball?
0: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Uh, continue.
0: Um, I honestly don't remember if I wound up being a bandwagon fan or not. It was you know it was middle school. American Idiot had just come out. I had a lot of stuff on my mind. Um, I mean, but, you're the child of rage and love, you know? Like I am the Jesus, the Jesus of, of suburbia. suburbia. Jinx, yay! <laughs> <laughs> um, sidebar, cigarettes and coffee was my Tumblr handle for quite a while. Wow. Anyway... In 2004, the Lightning win a Stanley Cup between behind now team legends Vincent LeCavalier, Martin Saint Louis, Dave Andrechuk, and Nikolai Hobby Bolin. and that's a fun name because it starts with a K. (laughs) Uh, Just to name a few, and in the past 15 years, Tampa's had their ups and downs. You know they've they've been back to the Stanley Cup Finals once they 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 did not win that time they've also had some real 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 bad seasons um but now we're living in the present and we are talking about the 2018-2019 tampa bay lightning who have been historically good i can say without exaggeration and without hyperbole so behind a new generation of superstars uh, including steven stamkos who i have an action figure of Nikita Kucherov, Braden Point, Victor Hedman, and Andre Vasilevsky. The team, as of this recording, we have two or three games left of the season. The team has a record of 59-15-4. The best record of any hockey team, period, since 2004. Mm. When I say it's good, <laughs> they're good. Nikita Kucherov has 122 points. Reaching 162 games, which is a thing that people do not do with the exception of uh, LHR hockey mention alumnus Mario Lemieux, who I will remind you was is like the secondary GOAT candidate in the hockey world. And the team has just broken several NHL records. Uh, In in the day between when I sent you these notes, they had another game, and in that game, the Lightning became the first team since 1995 to get 60 wins in a season, and the third team ever to do it in a league that is over 100 years old, and at one point only had six teams, and uh, Kucherov has scored 124 points. Uh, Which is the most since Yarmir Yagers 223 in 2006. This team. This
1: is the point where, because I am a monster, I feel the need to emphasize that uh, because his name bears a passing resemblance to former Soviet statesman Nikita Khrushchev, (laughs) I am picturing an old Soviet semi dictator. Just playing hockey and beating the shit out of people. Did
0: somebody say Khrushchev? That makes it so much better. I I never want you to know what this man actually looks like because you're not going to top Khrushchev playing hockey. And in like his full suit. Yeah, right.
1: Like that's a, that's how I'm picturing
0: it. No helmet because people seeing the birthmark is what gives him power.
1: <laughs> I think you're confusing oh, your Soviet yeah. statesmen. Am I thinking of
0: Gorbachev? Ah, uh, mm,
1: that's okay. Continue.
0: Well, now that we're talking about uh, you know Russian leaders and hockey, it is a hundred percent a real thing that Vladimir Putin will occasionally like just play hockey with all of the best Russian hockey players in the world and he will annihilate them because of course he will. They let him win. (laughs) Sure.
1: (laughs) Like happens,
0: you know, like you do. So this, this, this team is one of the best teams ever to play the game. This, this collection of people has racked up more points and done more things in the regular season than, than any other hockey team. And, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm I'm praying to the hockey gods that I am not horribly jinxing them. Uh, one of my least favorite things about hockey, at least when my teams are the best in the league, there is um, a, a thing called the President's Trophy. You get the President's Trophy for being the best team in the regular season. And there is a, uh, a curse that people like to ascribe to the trophy due to the fact that The people who win the President's Trophy rarely go on to win the Stanley Cup. I'm sitting here hoping these guys are so good they buck the trend. If nothing else, at time of recording, I will be fervently rooting them on, and it is 85% likely at any given moment that I am wearing a lightning jersey. (laughs) You, I I had a question for you, Alex, and this wasn't really in the notes. This is off the cuff. I, I know you to be a fan of competitive weightlifting. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there are championships besides the Olympics. Yes. So, has your favorite weightlifter, if you have one, won the title? while you were actively a fan of said weightlifter?
1: Uh, I can say once, yes. Uh, in 2017, I believe it was 2017, at world champions, at the world championship, uh, an American uh, weightlifter, a uh, super heavyweight woman named Sarah Robles, became the first American to win a gold uh, since 2000 at a world championship. She was literally, by, by the terms of Olympic weightlifting, she was the strongest woman in the world that year. And she is one of my absolute favorite weightlifters in the entire world. She's based out of Texas. She's coached by Tim Swartz. Nobody cares about these stats. <laughs> but, but I was literally at work with like my stuff open on one side of the screen and the live stream in the other side just watching the world championship and i watched her make her final clean and jerk clinching the match and it was stupendous and and there is your 2017 super heavyweight world
0: champion sarah robles well, excellent. I'm I'm very happy for you, and I'm happy that you were given joy by that thing in that moment, and you were able to witness it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I have this own self-afflicted curse hanging over my head, where no team that I like, that is my favorite or even one of my favorite teams has ever won a championship while I was actively a fan. You know, as I said before, I don't count the lightning in 2004 because it's not like I knew who they really were until at earliest the playoffs of that year. Um, You know, I grew up in Colorado, the Colorado avalanche were a juggernaut phenomenal team, but I was a little shit of a 10 year old who had a chip on my shoulder and couldn't root for the home team for some stupid reason. So <laughs> I don't count any of that. The, I, I, I have never seen a team win mostly because, you know, I only care about hockey. <laughs> so, so football, I could usually give a rip and I've never cared about uh baseball or basketball in that way. So I'm still, I'm still waiting for that little, that little taste of, of magic and candy to see, my team win it all and uh yeah i mean i'm just putting this energy out in the universe to make it happen and 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 really really not not particularly superstitious but still really hoping i'm not jinxing myself here (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. well okay so before we wrap up this particular segment, there is there is one question that I've been pondering as, as I've been listening to you talk, especially since you said that you really started paying attention to this team in 2004 when you were living in Colorado. And you literally just said right a moment ago that you have had trouble, uh, I think you said, rooting for the home team? Yes. So something that has... That I have always struggled with as a non-fan of most sports is I have struggled with this conception of being intensely loyal to a certain team specifically because it's where you're geographically from. And, or where you're geographically living, this idea of you know you root for your quote unquote home teams, and I, I and I have also struggled. Again, this is less because I'm a non fan than because I'm a non follower. Sure, I've struggled to know while having that in my head. I don't understand why people feel so feel this obsessive need to not only be such big fans of their home teams, but also invest themselves so deeply in it. At the same time, I've thought, how the hell <laughs> do you judge the wh- whether or not a team that you are not simply geographically affiliated with? How the hell do you judge whether or not they're worth following? How do you decide that a team from a place that you have nothing to do with is the team you want to root for players i can understand a little bit better um i get uh, like let's be fair i grew up in orlando in the 90s i understood the cult of personality surrounding certain basketball players i grew up when shaq i I remember when shaq was on the magic do the gold bar tingle i nurture my skin
0: foot powder
1: spray. That was a thing. I didn't follow basketball, and I remember that being a thing. So I'm curious to ask you. You say that they got put on your radar and you became a fan in 2004 when you weren't even living in Florida. Orlando's got a hockey team, and yet you're interested more in the hockey team, you know, two hours west of them. What is it that kind of characterizes a team, a franchise, as something you would be interested in following, regardless of the fact that, you know what, Tampa's not your home team. You live in Orlando. They weren't your home team when they got on your radar. You were living in Colorado. What the hell is it that makes them so interesting? Is it because they win? Because if that's the case, I mean, then all those fair-weather Yankee fans don't have <laughs> nearly as much to explain as they, as they probably really, really, really do. Um, so what is it?
0: Well I think there are many different answers to that question, you know, in in some cases and, and I'm speaking genu generally in some cases it is a bandwagon thing, you know, uh that's where you you get fans of of the Boston Bruins in 2011 because they won the cup in 2010 and and before then no one could give a, a, a crap. Um and, and even just to give bandwagon fans a little bit of a benefit of the doubt it's not even so much oh they win as it is oh this team is suddenly like in my face and i've been watching them for eh, at least a week <laughs> and also they won and and the, the the one thing i would give credit to anyone who's a bandwagon fan is if if you happen to become a fan after somebody wins a title and you stay a fan, then that that's fine. If you're somebody who likes a team because they win and after they stop winning, you don't care, then uh, I think you do have a lot of explaining to do. Um, so that, that's part of it. You know, just maybe, maybe you like the sport, you never really cared about it, and then all of a sudden, oh, oh, this... This, this Chicago Blackhawks team is is interesting. They they won a title a couple years ago. I'll, I'll pay attention. And, oh, they won a title again. Oh, elation. <laughs> Maybe um, it's not your hometown, but it is your parents' hometown. Hi, Catherine. I'm looking at you now. Speaking of the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, I have a friend who grew up in Boca and... Um, is a diehard fan of all Chicago sports teams because that's where her parents from.
1: Um, maybe I know a lot I know a lot of Bostonians who say the same thing. Like every Boston franchise there is, they follow them and they care about them despite living in completely other segments of the country.
0: Right, exactly. Um, Maybe you're a nine-year-old like I was, and you decide green and gold is a really cool color scheme, and then you just decide you like the Dallas Stars, even though you're in Colorado. Or maybe you think that, wow, blue and white with a lightning bolt is really kind of awesome. Now I'm a Tampa Bay fan. (laughs) I think there could be several different reasons depending on your your age, your uh mental investment on it and and personal background history. I think for me it's like yeah, back in 2004 living in in Colorado, I couldn't like the Avalanche for some stupid reason. I just couldn't like the team that not you know what, it's not stupid. I'm I'm not going to harp on myself. I couldn't like the Avalanche because all the crap, all the crappy people I went to school with liked the Avalanche, and they were crappy people, and therefore I couldn't like them. So I'm looking for a sure. team, and here's a team that is getting a lot of buzz and I decide I like the fact that one of the dudes is like five foot four and he's literally the shortest guy on the ice and yet he's scoring goals and he's getting into fights and he's being this little maniac. Maybe I like that this guy's name has a silent K and he's a really good goalie. You know, your, your brain latches on to things about the players or maybe about the team. And if you're my kind of, new fan you know you latch on and you 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 form your own commitments and you fall in love with the team and even when they suck uh you know you stick with them
1: all right i think that answers my question i it's just something i've always been curious about you know like the only the only sport i've ever cared about is about individuals yes competing for teams technically under certain coaches technically but at the end of the day, like if somebody podiums, that individual won the medal. It's not, it's not the team that got it. If you happen to follow that particular team or that particular coach um, and you're a fan of theirs, yes, you can be tangentially excited that their athlete made it, but it, it's, it's an individual thing. Team sports have always confused me. In a lot of ways, and franchises have always confused me in a lot of ways sure um, so I've always been curious what exactly it is that invests a person in a franchise because geography always seemed weird, but at the same time, I guess I kinda get it if for no other reason than everything other than geography seems harder to latch onto so I appreciate you answering that for me
0: i'm I'm very happy that i uh could help you out with that man i'm i mean that i'm i i'm happy you had a question and that i can answer it
1: i mean you're (laughs) when we were uh talking about the topics for this episode we were we were texting each other a little bit ahead of time and you floated a few topics and we decided to sideline some and 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 run with this and my attitude was very much you know this is something I don't know a lot about. Let me, let me try and learn something. Let me, because I'm, because again, I'm never going to care about this, but you care, and I love you, and so I want you to be excited, and I want to try and learn something from you.
0: Bomb shucks. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you and everyone else will know <laughs> how how the team is doing for for the next couple weeks, at least. Um, I will absolutely use this as an excuse to spam a bunch of hockey stuff on the LHR Twitter. <laughs> <sighs>
1: And those of you who uh want to combat this, please tweet your best pictures of Nikita Khrushchev <laughs> directly at every post Andy makes.
0: Oh come on, come on engagement. Come come on, fan engagement, pick up. I I need this to happen now.
1: <laughs> Ain't too proud to beg for engagement. Uh Shoutouts to Jeremy Pope, our uh, old high school buddy who's currently in Ain't Too Proud to Beg on Broadway. If you're in New York and have the opportunity, go see him.
0: Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I carried an insane, one-way jealous rivalry with this kid because I didn't like that he got the lead in every musical ever. But, uh, you know, clearly <laughs> uh, all our directors knew what was up. So go see Ain't Too Proud to Beg on Broadway if you're in the area.
1: Straight up. All right, shout out aside. You ready to move on?
0: Yeah, man, let's do it.
1: Okay, so starting off very simply as we come into this hate. And Andy, I'm as a film guy, I'm very intrigued to get your take on a lot of this material. So my notes are fairly sparse. Um, I'm interested in having a conversation here, but I'm going to lead in as I typically do. So, simple question to you, my friend. Or actually two. Uh, First, could you name one artist who you would comfortably label as an auteur? And can you then contrast them with one artist of the same art form that you feel does not receive and or deserve that label? We're going to be talking a lot about film, but you're also welcome to bring in any other art form that you're interested in.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, film's my wheelhouse, and and that's the one that I can draw easiest from. Although, I could answer this with a different... I I, I could answer this with comic book artists. And you know what? For the sake of uh, our other wheelhouse... I would call Bill Sienkiewicz an auteur. And Bill Sienkiewicz Mm. is an artist and particularly an anchor. He worked on a ton of comic books in the 80s um, and has a very famous run on the comic book New Mutants that really Mm. showcases his style. Bill Sienkiewicz Mm -hmm. has this insane, unique style to his art and to his drawings and i think he deserves the label of an auteur to counterpoint that somebody who also worked on the new mutants in a different era than bill sinkevich is a man by the name of rob yeah you know it uh, i'm speaking of course of rob liefeld
1: god damn rob liefeld and rob
0: liefeld doesn't know how to draw feet <laughs> and rob liefeld doesn't know how to draw muscular like muscle structure <laughs> and uh. and and the man is is credited as one of the most famous like popular artists of the 90s people say that he helped like save comic books at a time when they were dying but the man is also infamous for being just a god awful artist and so there's, there's my point counterpoint. Bill Sienkiewicz is a brilliant artist and an auteur, and we'd probably be better off if Rob Liefeld had just stick to writing scripts and creating Deadpool. Oh.
1: I'm touching myself tonight. Okay. So as I go into my discussion of this hate, which um, I didn't say it before, but it is auteur theory. Uh, which I'll define in just a moment. But going into that definition, um, I just want to make one observation based on the two examples you gave me, Andy, which is it sounds, based on your explanation of Bill Sinkevich and Rob Liefeld, that a lot of what you apply the auteur theory to you personally, from the sound of your answer to my question, seems to be based on the quality of the art
0: for me personally yes
1: okay for you personally yes that's i wanted to state that as i go into this okay so basic definition originally coined by american film critic andrew saris and derived from french film critics andre bazin and alexandra ostrouk Uh, both of whom sound like they could be hockey players on the Tampa Bay Lightning. Indeed, Auteur theory is a value system that was formalized in the late 1940s to distinguish French new wave filmmakers from those in the American studio system. The original idea at the time that this kind of system was formulated was that American movies were on kind of a factory model. With actors doing the same sorts of roles, screenwriters churning out studio-driven scripts, directors working to house styles for the studio, while French film at the time was viewed as a dynamic, personal art form that could be attributable to a singular vision of one person, typically the director, as one might the author of a novel. The conceit has since been applied to other art forms like music, comic book writing, And even video games. And there's a school of thought that suggests lending more resources and control to a singular visionary producer. Or a single visionary um, produces better art. So, I fucking hate this conceit. I hate the notion that there even really is such a thing as a quote-unquote auteur. To begin with, I feel like it's based on a flawed premise, because the only way that a singular individual could wholly control their art form, especially if their art form is something like film or comic books, is to literally do every single job. That director would also need to be an editor, a cinematographer, a writer, mixer, set and costume designer, everything. And even when that director is given the final say, it's still a collaborative medium, you know? And, and, and this notion that it's like a director or a comic writer or a comic artist is an auteur, is the singular author of the novel, ignores the idea that even fucking novelists get edited by editors. They have input from publicists, from agents from marketers, from the people who designed the damn covers, yeah. all of these so-called... Like, a so-called art form or, or a so-called singular art form is pretty much always still, to some degree or another, a collaborative medium. And that really bugs me. Like, we talked back on the tortured artist's Uh, podcast, Uh, I mentioned that something that really bothered me about the concept of tortured artists was that it ignores a lot of the work that those artists would put in. You know, saying that Kurt Cobain wrote those songs because he was a depressed, pained individual ignores the fact that he slaved for hours on the music, trying to make sure that it worked sonically before he ever, he ever touched a pen to paper in order to write any lyrics, you know, calling a, a, and, and saying that, you know, Jim Morrison was a tortured artist ignores the fact that he studied Rambo extensively as a poetic influence. Like it ignores all of this work that people do and ascribing art to singular auteurs ignores so many of the contributions that other artists, that other creators bring to a product.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I can think of a couple counterexamples just of what an auteur is not based off what you were just talking about, specifically like, like, let's take a look at Mr. Bad Guy. Which is Freddie Mercury's solo album. You're you're a living, breathing person. You probably saw Bohemian Rhapsody, and if you didn't, minor spoilers. There is, uh, you know, the bit where Queen breaks up, and and Freddie goes to make his own his own albums, and he is given complete creative control, and he writes all his own songs, and he is at least responsible for the sound of of what everything sounds like and both in his own words in the movie and in the fact that i don't think anyone has ever really heard of mr bad guy um the albums were flops and in the movie he attributes this to the fact that he didn't have his bandmates to provide their own creative influences and to fight him on his decisions even then Like, Freddie Mercury wrote all the songs, he he played piano, synthesizer, and did the arrangements, but he didn't play guitar, he didn't play the drums, he didn't do everything himself. This was not going to be my film answer, but Robert Rodriguez would probably call himself an auteur. I wouldn't. Maybe. But...
1: You know, I don't know, because Robert Rodriguez, like I've read interviews with Robert Rodriguez. He gives a lot of credit to his cinematographers, a lot of credit to them.
0: OK, uh, I have not read those interviews where what I, I was going to highlight the fact that he is uh, a little infamous for doing. A majority of the jobs on on at least some of his films you know famously before he got discovered and he made el mariachi he was the director editor cinematographer he did the sound mixing and and my I, i'll be fascinated to read these because they disprove my point but you know where i was going was just the fact that Robert Rodriguez has his fingers in a lot of the different pies of his movies, but even then, he's not costume designing. He's not gaffing. Um, Yeah. So I I agree with your your conceit that it is a flawed premise.
1: Hello, this is Robert Rodriguez, and it's time for another edition of the 10-Minute Cooking School Sin City Breakfast Tacos. Yeah. Slight correction, just because I have to do this. One thing that Bohemian Rhapsody deliberately edited for the sake of the movie was Queen never actually broke up. Freddie did pursue Mr. Bad Guy as a solo project and he did solo work, but he did solo work on his own time, but never is it was never a I am leaving Queen to do this. Queen has broken up so that I can do this. It was always pursued with Queen at the same time. And the rest of Queen, they were like the Beatles. All of them wrote songs. All four of them wrote songs.
0: Sure, no, f- fair point. Uh,
1: yeah. I wanna... I'm not going to let you say that Freddie Mercury wrote I'm in Love With My Car. Because that song is garbage and can only be given to Roger Taylor.
0: Oh well, no, no, no. I, I. <laughs> first of all, yes, uh, but no. I meant, I meant. Freddie wrote all of the songs on Mister Bad Guy.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he absolutely did that. <laughs> but, but, but you know what? You're right. There, there's, there's. It's funny because um, i so. There's a new podcast I discovered. Uh, I mentioned a while ago that I was looking for like musical podcasts, and Song Exploder is a fascinating podcast. All the episodes are like. 10 to 20 minutes long, but they are all an individual artist. They're, they're all an artist talking about the creation of a particular song. And they'll play like, Oh, here's how we came up with this vocal track. And here's what we did on the drums. And here's how this guitar part came together. And here's where we decided to like shake a bunch of salt shakers in order to get this percussive element. And it's really <laughs> fascinating. And they've no seriously. And, and, and it's really, really interesting. And it's, It's fun to binge through, but something that gets regularly brought in there are, there's a lot of one person bands on this podcast. There's a lot of, they do a lot of electronic music, a lot of techno groups. So there's a lot of one person bands and a lot of them will straight up be like, oh yeah, no. And then um, I had such and such person come in and they wrote my chorus and sang the chorus. And I was like, that's perfect. That's a perfect chorus. And they came in and did this session. And Even in a one-person band, you get that shit. Like, the closest thing to a proper auteur I can think of, like, that I would be willing to maybe give, would probably be uh, either Prince or Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. If for no other reason than they play all the instruments on all of their albums, I think... Think I I know I know Resner also produces his own stuff. I'm pretty sure Prince produced or co-produced all of his stuff. Um, I don't know if they mixed it, but that would be a factor of collaboration. But I also know for a fact in all of those cases they brought in other artists to help out with other stuff. So even if they're being directed, it is never the singular work of one person. And some people will argue, oh, well, it's the singular vision, you know. Pet Sounds, when Brian Wilson did Pet Sounds, that was his singular vision. When Stanley Kubrick did The Shining, that was his singular vision. He controlled every aspect of that. Eh, did he? Because Brian Wilson's a great musician, but he could never play bass like Carol Kay. Yeah. And Carol Kay played bass on all the songs in Pet Sounds. Brian Wilson was the bassist in The Beach Boys. And Carol Kay played all the bass on Pet Sounds. <laughs> because Brian Wilson knew she was better than he was at that instrument. Stanley Kubrick, well he let's be fair, he tortured his actors, <laughs> which is another point I was gonna get right. into. He tortured his actors um to get the performances that he decided he wanted. Coincidentally, um, most of the actors he tortured tended to be women. Uh, mm. But, hmm. Uh, same thing with Alfred Hitchcock. You know, Alfred Alfred Hitchcock nearly blinded Janet Lee on Psycho mm. because he needed that shot coming away from her eye and she couldn't blink. So he got his shot and she almost destroyed her cornea so that he could have his shot. Autour, like. This conception of auteur, and especially this part that suggests that this singular vision of one artistic being. Like, I get it. I, I get the idea that you want your creative forces to have creative freedom. And that's, that's lovely. That's so lovely. And, and if you want to give a particular amount of artistic license to certain people, that can be reasonable to a degree, you know. I'm happy with people giving Steven Spielberg resources because when Steven Spielberg needed to do a, a scene where there were chained slaves, he had the sensitivity to make sure that if the people who physically chained his actors, his black actors together, were other black people, And that he had resources on hand in case this was a psychologically traumatic experience. Because Steven Spielberg, who a lot of people would call an auteur, is a responsible fucking human being. And Steven Spielberg also is willing to let Tony Kushner write Lincoln for him. Because Steven Spielberg could never write Lincoln. But Tony Kushner could. And that's the thing. It's like... In some cases, you get the auteur who's willing to buy into their own theory, and they destroy people because of it. In some cases, you get people who get the auteur ascription, and they don't buy their own hype. Spielberg's an example of that. I think when people call Spielberg an auteur, he probably just kind of goes, okay, that's nice. Did you talk to Tony? Did you talk to Daniel Day-Lewis? Did you talk to Sally Fields? Did you talk to the people who gave incredible performance. Did you talk to John fucking Williams who made this thing work? Who made the emotion of this scene work with his brilliant scoring? Steven Spielberg will give that. The people who subscribe to auteur theory don't. They want it to be a singular vision. They need it to be the singular vision.
0: You want me
1: on that wall. You need me on that wall. Because film can't be collaborative, I guess. Because art can't be collaborative, I guess.
0: Well, and the biggest thing for me is, in so many examples, it seems like "auteur" is just verbal shortcut for the best. You know, I uh, I think yeah. of down to your right.
1: example there.
0: Well, I think of to this was the example I was going to go with. I think about Terrence Malick, who is a American film director and terrence malick paints with film he he is responsible for some of the most beautiful shots and film compositions i've ever seen he he's made some of the most beautiful movies i've ever seen um to list some examples the thin red line or the new world days of heaven um, he is a director, but he is very well known for kind of visually mapping out his movies, even, even if he's hired a cinematographer. And if you type in Terrence Malick in Google, like, one of the pulldowns is Terrence Malick auteur. And it's like, or is he just one of the best directors ever? Like, I think... I think the key you you hit on is does the person being called an auteur buy into their own ego and their own hype? And do you get Rob Liefeld who people loved his art in, in the time it came out and people thought it was dynamic and sure. engaging and he got all this praise for his art in a time when artists were designing characters and maybe coming up with comic plots. And he went, Oh, I'm such an amazing artist. I should just be the writer now too. To go back to Bill Sienkiewicz. Yes. He, he wrote some comics. He wrote a little bit of Electra. He wrote a little bit of Moon Knight, but like he never broke down Marvel's door saying, I'm the next big thing. Let's do this.
1: Yeah. No. And the thing is, Bill, would would Bill Sienkiewicz have been as good on New Mutants as he was if he wasn't working with Louise Simonson and Chris Claremont? Right. I mean,
0: probably not. We don't I know. Mean, I, but...
1: I mean, honestly, I mean, w- w- you're right. You're, you know what? You're right. We don't know that. We earnestly don't. But the fact of the matter is... Those writers will tell you that Sienkiewicz's art was what brought their words to life. And Sienkiewicz will tell you, it's easy to draw like that when you have such great stories. True. And you have such great scripts. Leifeld, you know, I'll give Leifeld credit. Leifeld started out trying his best and willing to work with people. It was only as Leifeld got more and more full of himself, as he started eating more of his own shit. <laughs> that 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 this whole thing blew up for him. That's what meant like for those of you who don't know, Rob Leifeld started off as this child wunderkind. He started drawing for Marvel when he was still a yeah. teenager. And and after what, three, four years? Uh, working for Marvel, he split off with a group of other creators and formed Image. And his work on Image—can you remember his work on Image, Andy?
0: Uh, to my shame, I, I'm pretty positive he created the comic book Young Blood. Yes. <laughs> have
1: you have you ever read Young Blood? No. Okay, I read issue number one of young Blood because it was available for free on digital, and I have never felt the need <laughs> to pick up a single other copy of young blood sure. ever period and and the thing is like sometimes I feel bad for Liefeld, you know he was a nineteen year old kid who's who was drawing comic books and now he then he's appearing in Levi's commercial commercials and being told that he's like. The next hot shit. And that he had saved the comics industry. And then all of this just kind of tanks for him. But... And and sure, he never learned to draw feet. Sure, his proportions were ridiculous. Um, I have read his comics. And I've read comics not by him. That I have disliked the artwork on more. But at the end of the day, like... I got to give Liefeld this. He's got a distinctive style. A lot of auteur theory talks about, like, you should have a really distinct, individualized, recognizable style. Liefeld has that. I'm not sure how much else Liefeld has. I think, I think, I think in pop culture, you're right. You, you, you hit on this. I think, I think we hit on this from the beginning. Like, it's. We'll say auteur for good quality. Auteur was originally supposed to mean that this is an individualized vision directly in opposition to a studio model. Directly in opposition to the fact that all the Paramount movies were written and acted and produced and shot the same way. And all the United Artists movies were written and directed and produced and shot in this singular other way but it was unique to that studio. It was the idea that, you know, producers were the ones driving the works. And auteurs were these French filmmakers, many of whom were operating on very low budgets and doing very individualistic things using those low budgets and telling their own individualized stories. That it it was a way to distinguish these people. And somewhere along the line, maybe it's because you know we don't teach critical art theory in public schools. Fair enough. Somewhere along the line, the idea became, "Nah, man, Godfather's really, really good. Coppola's an auteur." Well, Godfather's really, really good. Are you sure Coppola's an auteur? Like, are you sure? Yeah, I don't
0: know. I think that's a great point. I want to get into the question but did you want to speak on the racial component at all?
1: Um well, I mean this is partially based on it's racial, it's also sex-based. Sure. Um yeah, it's a lot of white dudes who get called auteurs. Phil Spector, Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock are the, all ones I mentioned. I said George Lucas earlier, you know. He's he he, he gets called an auteur. When in reality, how much of his success can be attributed to Lawrence Kasdan's screenwriting, Marsha Lucas's editing, or Ralph McQuarrie's character designs? There's a reason the prequels weren't as good hmm. as the original trilogy, and a lot of that was people blowing smoke of George Lucas's sure. ass. It's worthwhile for me to call out, when we talked about Guillermo del Toro, you called him an auteur. You didn't sit down and go, these are all the reasons why he's an auteur. You said it in passing. I re listened to that episode, just just to be sure of this. That was one of the first times that I ever heard a person of color being referred to as an auteur. Recently, some people have started applying it to Jordan Peele. I, myself, a moment ago, just applied it potentially to Prince. I don't like the term auteur, but if there's someone who could maybe deserve it uh, in music... Prince is definitely not the worst candidate. But it's a worthwhile question to sit and think about as you're reading stuff, as you're watching movies, as you're listening to the marketing, you know, um, or as you're looking at marketing. Check out who gets called an auteur. Check out who gets discussed as an auteur, who people reference. And see how often it's women. See how often it's people of color, you know? Sure.
0: I agree, man. When
1: Nora... Yeah, like, when Nora Ephron died, a lot of people talked about, you know, what a brilliant screenwriter she was, but she doesn't get called an auteur screenwriter or director, you know? Like, it... if it weren't for the fact that Woody Allen has completely destroyed his own image, I guarantee you, when he dies, people would have called him an auteur. Nora Ephraim is just as deserving, and she's never going to get it, you know? Spike Lee deserves, might deserve to be called, called an auteur if you're purely basing it off of whether or not they make quality, good-ass art with its own characteristic voice and unique style. How many people are going to call Spike Lee an auteur? How many people do? I know you recently watched uh, a fabulous John Waters movie that I recommend to everyone called Cecil B. Demented. And they list several directors in there who are like these visionary directors that these uh, characters want to emulate. Spike Lee gets mentioned, almost tokenly so, amidst a slew of other directors. I think it's worth asking yourself why all of those directors, I think every single other one of them other than Spike Lee, is a white man.
0: For importance, I will point out one of them is Pedro Amaldivar, who is a Spaniard man.
1: A Spaniard
0: a, a a a white Latino, yes. <laughs>
1: I see you're referencing the Europeans who (laughs) raped a lot of my ancestors, Andrew. You know what?
0: Your point stands. Just ignore me over here. (laughs) This might get cut for time.
1: It's a meandering way to close this out. But yes, auteur theory. People, it's terrible. Consider art a collaborative art form. It is never a singular vision. No one benefits from calling it a singular vision. Ask yourself these questions when you consume your art. It's my final sure. word. I feel like Sprinter.
0: <laughs> no, I... I questions? Just, <laughs> no questions. I am in complete agreement.
1: Okay. Uh, shall we move on to our yeah, question Yeah, let's then? go
0: into that one. Um,
1: All right. You uh, track this one down. Yeah, you want to read it?
0: For sure. Hey, LHR. Hope you're all well. Do you have any colleagues who are just chronically angry, ticking time bombs where the slightest thing can trigger them at any moment? The sort of person who is chronically negative and tries their very best to find things to be angry about or people to be angry at. When they're not angry, they're just miserable and try to bring everyone else down with them. Yet despite their temper tantrums, inappropriate rage fests, and general inappropriate and disruptive behavior, the managerial staff do absolutely nothing to resolve the situation, presumably because they're too scared of the consequences. We have one of those people at my work. I have worked there for over a decade, with the same person routinely causing the same problems – Problems that have been routinely reported after having gone through HR, managerial, and counseling and support. I've tolerated it for so long because I love my job, get good pay, it's in a great location, get on really well with the other colleagues... But this one person basically destroys the balance and harmony in the whole team, causes rifts between people, and generally makes working there very unpleasant when you're on the wrong side of them. This has led to us dealing with high staff turnover in our department through all the trouble that is caused as a result of their escalating outbursts. It's infuriating that people are forced to consider giving up their career because of this one person, and here I am considering the same option. And um, I, uh, I, I did not copy it all, but basically, this person has explained their situation and is asking us if they're in the right for doing so. Cons- considering getting out and, and what if, if, if are, is there anything they can do besides getting out of that situation?
1: Okay. And did they leave a call sign?
0: They did not.
1: Okay. So what we're looking at is somebody, who is dealing with a really difficult workplace situation and is considering just outright rebellion, bolting off, you know, into the horizon? I have a call sign suggestion.
0: Oh, hit me with it Furiosa? okay so i gotta say real quick uh one of one of the few legit like feedback from someone who listens to our show bits of trivia i've got hey catherine love you is uh a a a a double thumbs up at all of the office names we keep giving people however however i think i think she will appreciate furiosa Uh, Imperator Furiosa! (laughs) Remember me? Ah, love it. Okay. Hello, Furiosa. You're a badass. You're a absolute badass, and you have a metal
1: arm. (laughs) Straight up. Uh, okay, so, would you like to start this off, my friend, or shall I?
0: Um... Well let me just start because get a like like no you're not doing anything wrong for trying to get out and is there anything you can do I mean at this point this this reminds me of of Harley Quinn and her place you know if you've gone to management and it seems like this person is so disruptive and angry and has a power base over your workspace that they're they're almost untouchable because people are scared. Ooh, that is not a good situation to be in. And I I can't fault you for trying to get out of there, even with all the, the pros. You know, that's my biggest yeah. thing.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, it's funny because, um, again, as of recording this, we just had an episode where we gave Pam Beasley advice dealing with a difficult uh somewhat thoughtless and secure co-worker. And this feels like it's in that vein, but ratcheted up to like eleven and holding like a flaming sword. Uh to Pam Beasley, we would have never suggested that leaving would be the best course of action. And you know, Furiosa, I'm not I don't know that I'm necessarily saying it would be in this case, um, just ostensibly, but you say you're considering this option, but you also talk about loving this job, that it's great pay, and that you get in, you get on really, really well with everybody else. I'd be curious to know what the breaking point is. Like, have you hit a breaking point? Has there been some really, really extra traumatic experience that has just pushed you over the edge? Has it just been a slow buildup and you've reached a personal point where you can't handle it anymore? If you're asking us if you should feel bad for leaving, no, I'm with Andy. You absolutely should not feel bad for wanting to leave. Like, I've said this on the podcast before, work takes up a significant portion of your life. That's just kind of how things are. And the more things you can do to mitigate misery in that environment, you know, the better. I guess what I'm trying to figure out for you um, is really what your strategy should be. Because are you honestly, have you decided? Has she said that she's deciding to leave?
0: No, but is at this point, despite loving their her job, it's it's on the table.
1: I mean, if you honestly have no support, and that is a dark, sad, sorry thing to realize. If you honestly have no support and you have somewhere to go, and this guy is so extensively grading on your well-being, no job is worth your happiness. Honestly. Honestly. The only jobs that are are the ones that you have no other choice but to take or sacrifice your well-being and survival. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a real bitch. And the fact that food and shelter are so important kind of means that some of us need to stick it out through some terrible things. And there's no shame in that. If you're in a place where you can walk away... Maybe there's an adventure to be had there, maybe there's something good to be had there. If you do decide to walk away, which again, you shouldn't feel bad about doing. I'd ask you how you make your peace with that, that someone was able to drive you away from this
0: yeah, i mean you've you've summed up what I was gonna say, you know, if there's a landing spot to be had i I would be jumping for it myself right now it's It's very interesting because you've been doing this for a decade, and yet so have they. and you you say that it's about been ten years of this chronic negativity and work related rage. Maybe this is the breaking point. they didn't specify that it's just you know enough's enough, and I'm getting too old for this shit. I recall, and this is this is about the only bit of real life experience i can pull from i recall working at regal cinemas hey i worked there yeah you you might remember drew who i'm talking about here drew was an usher and drew was a 40 45 year old man who worked as an usher at the movie theater and also worked at the target in the same shopping plaza and drew once threw The ticket kiosk, because his shift had been changed without him being notified. And I got out of Regal for, you know, completely different reasons, but I can remember that at the drop of a hat, this just sudden bout of Hulk rage if this is the kind of disruption you're dealing with where somebody's throwing crap around the office or breaking stuff or just, you know, hulking out, I, I don't think the benefits outweigh the potential emotional and very potential physical Duress and and damage that could be caused by working with this and and I mean ten years of chronic negativity you don't need that. So if you got to stick with it to make the the ends meet, I feel for you. And that's a completely different situation. But if there is a job that is a twenty minute longer commute and Maybe a slight pay cut, but they don't have a hulk and I'd be thinking about it and i'd be I'd be thinking about it enough where I wasn't asking others i'd be I'd be going for it yeah
1: It's not quite what I was getting at, but I think that that's a really instructive story there. The part I really want to emphasize here, Furiosa is uh, while you're driving along that dark desert highway, uh, choosing to leave like that, there I'm, I'm gonna putting myself in your situation and maybe I'm projecting. And if I am, I really I, I really sincerely am apologizing. I, I am sorry for that, if I am projecting here. But I feel like if I left a job that I really, really enjoyed because one person was having that deep of an effect on me, I would have a lot of what-if to deal with. And that's what I would be talking to my counselors about. Going, I feel... Like, I would feel a distinct sense of defeat. Uh, Like, I allowed one piece of shit. And let's be frank. This dude is a piece of shit. Control my decisions like that, I would feel legitimately awful about that. It doesn't sound like he has any real power over you, it's just you have to suck it up and deal with him a lot, which is awful. I would struggle with that. And I would really need to do some deep psychological work to see how I could square that hole. If encouragement from us is what you need, that, you know, if this is something that is seriously grating on your mental health and you feel the need to leave, for the good of your mental health. By all means, you have our support. You have our complete and total... Like, if you need permission, go. You have permission. Here's a completely unqualified stranger telling you. You have permission (laughs) to leave. You have permission to go and do the thing. I'm concerned if you need anything more than that. Because I think I would. Uh, And I hope you don't. I hope that you have that security and sense of self not to need that. Yeah. If your question is really, honestly, should you feel bad about wanting to leave, ask yourself why you're asking that question. Because everyone has their breaking points. And if your employer isn't going to be supportive, and, and I don't know if you've explored this option, I generally don't support ultimatums, but if it's if you're already out the door and you want to throw a Hail Mary, that's a football term, not a hockey term, right, right Andy? Correct, Hail Mary. sir,
0: correct. Cool.
1: Cool. All right. So, if you want to throw, what, what's what's the hockey equivalent of a hail mary? Like a hail Gordy? Um,
0: <laughs> it's actually a suicide pass, which <laughs> is not a good. Okay, thing you to want do. to throw.
1: If you want to throw a suicide, <laughs> okay, this sounds terrible. Um, Furiosa, if you want to take a sniper shot into the dark, there you go, uh, and see if your employer would at all be receptive to you just flat out doing a him or me if you're leaving anyway that might not be the worst thing in the world because yeah. at the worst at the worst they might just say okay it's him then you don't lose anything for the for the attempt presumably unless you're really really dependent on like a reference from a very specific individual that you're offering this to and you honestly think that would tank it you know don't tank your references over this but might be worth a shot because it sounds like if you've been there for 10 years, you're valuable. If he's been there for 10 years and they've been tolerating him, maybe he's valuable or maybe they're afraid of him. Hard to say. But you're probably pretty valuable. So out on your way out the door, go for it. And, yeah, don't don't ever feel bad for making decisions for your well-being and a lack of support from up above on something that's ruining your day-to-day life, it's valid to walk away. It's a shame, it's a pity, it's terrible, and you deserve better. But sometimes you get to the oasis, it's not what you thought it would be, so you have to go and build a new world, maybe on the ashes of the world you just escaped from. That's not me telling you to stage a violent coup of your workplace (laughs) i realized where i was heading halfway through this metaphor don't
0: rip off his jaw in a cinematically awesome action sequence
1: god how good is fury road (laughs) um furiosa we hope this helps you know we do what's best for you yeah and you have our support
0: You can't hurt. At the end of the day, nothing is more important than you and your well-being. And I don't care if you've been 26. I don't care if you're 26 and you've been doing this since you're 16. You're too old for this shit. Trust me. Um, So that has been Love-Hate Relationship. And if you have a relationship question and you want our advice on it, if you need a little validation, if you need someone to push you over the fence one way or the other, we are more than happy to do that. And you can we'll push you. We will
1: push you <laughs> off that fence. Absolutely.
0: With gusto. You can send those to love, hate at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. You
1: can subscribe and review to us. Wait, subscribe to us and review us, there we go, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio, hey mom. Uh, And uh, seriously guys, we would love reviews on, on any of those platforms, and if you have more platforms, if you listen to us on some other, via some other means, and would love to see us there, we would love to be there, we want to be there for you. Uh, you can also tweet us at lhrpod that's l h r p o d with your questions and follow us to keep up with new episodes as well as just engage with us generally
0: we're hungry 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 gluttonous for that engagement if 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 you're not leaving us a review because you don't like something about the show tell us we we would uh, we would love to learn what you think we could be doing differently you know, the one thing we don't want you to be is silent and indifferent because that goes against the entire point of the show.
1: Yeah, seriously. And if you think we're too busy to respond to you, we promise you we're not. Like, not at all.
0: (laughs) Um, If you want to send those to me personally, I'm Andy Boel. You can find me on Twitter at jovocop2113.
1: And I'm at a underscore x underscore r-u-i-z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you so much. And uh, please, as always, tell your enemies.